1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
2: There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Friends, this is a true story of death, loss, and one mother's courage to face her daughter's killer and ultimately find peace and comfort in her heart to forgive the man that took away her daughter's life. I had this conversation with my guest today, Rosie Aliff, not that long ago actually, She has a book called Far From Home, which was such an emotional read for me that I had to put it down. (laughs) It was quite raw, quite moving, and I do have to prepare you before you journey into the story box with me today and and listen to Rosie's heartfelt story that it is quite a heartfelt tale. Uh, That's just putting it lightly from me. There's a lot in here that may be shocking for some of you, but it really, what it does is it paints the picture of the struggle for justice uh, and it also exposes the scandalous exploitations of young workers here in my own country of Australia. It is crazy to think that something like this does happen around the world or even it happening in Australia to young people, you should feel safe. You should feel like you can go to countries like first world countries like Australia and not have to fight for your life or not have to be exploited in that way. But this is the reality of the world that we are living in today and it is a sad, sad reality. And it's, it's because of people like Rosie who uh, decide to speak up about their own experiences and they, they do decide to try and make a change. It, I know it takes a lot of courage uh, to be able to do this, but Rosie is one of those people and I'll forever honor uh, Rosie's story and her ability to uh, find the strength to not only face her her daughter's killer but to forgive him as well. So British mother Rosie Aliff thought her 21-year-old daughter Mia would be safe travelling around Australia on a gap year. But Mia wanted to extend her visa. In order to do that, uh, she needed to find 88 days of work on a farm, a requirement that would lead to catastrophic events. Four short days after Mia moved to a hostel in Queensland to take a job on a sugarcane farm, she was brutally killed. Faced with every parent's worst nightmare, Rosie travelled to Australia to retrieve Mia's body. From the moment she landed, however, she started to hear stories about the terrible treatment of young workers like Mia, stories of exploitation, sexual harassment, and even rape. Mia was Rosie's only child, and she brought her up as a single parent. Imagine having to lose uh, the the one that you brought up and was so close to you. Her death was traumatic and life-changing. In Rosie's memoir, Uh, Far From Home, she describes movingly how she she has found the strength to come to terms with devastating loss, drawing on inspiration from her daughter's short life. She also explains how she became the driving force behind an international campaign to press for change to the 88-day system. But... Part expose of the dangers facing backpackers in Australia, part call to arms, far from home, is an inspiring and heartfelt story. It's also very emotional of a mother's love for a daughter and a fight to protect others from suffering a similar tragedy. My friends, if you do get something from this conversation, please share it around to all your friends and family. This is a heartfelt uh, plea from me that this is a message or a story more or less that needs to be spread far and wide. We need to do our part in putting a stop to trafficking even here. I, I don't like saying it, but even here in Australia, that is the unfortunate reality of what's going on. Uh, there's some terrible people out there in the world. But there's also some great people like Rosie who are trying to make a change. Will you join me and Rosie in doing our bit to make a change? By spreading this story around so more and more people can actually listen to it or even watch it. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, listening to this conversation today. Don't forget, before you leave, to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box today as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than a courageous mother, Rosie Aliff. Thank you. It's it's a true honor to have you here because, as I was saying before, I couldn't, I had to stop reading your book because it is quite an emotional read. Uh, So for those people that are listening or watching, prepare yourself. (laughs) Um, Now, I want to start from the very, very beginning. Are you able to share with me? Um, What actually happened?
0: Uh, Well, where is the beginning? I suppose the beginning of the book is where the police arrived and I was told that Mia had been fatally wounded. And then I had to work out what that meant. And then I realised that it meant she was dead. And, um, yeah, and then... For me, it was a just a journey of, tra- for, first of all, just a journey of trying to accept that that was actually the case because I went into denial and, mm. you know, um, the stages of grief, I suppose, was what I was going through. And um, I had to go out to Australia to pick up a body next, which was
2: traumatic. Mm, I can imagine. So... Can you walk me through that moment the police arrived at your doorstep? What was going through your mind the moment they, the moment they arrived?
0: It's funny because I think people think that's, that's going to be a really dramatic thing, but what I, when, when they arrived at, the last time they'd been at the doorstep at night, they'd actually come into the house to say your house is really insecure because your garage doors open. And now we've just walked into your house. So, when they were stood at the door, I just assumed it was something like that, that it, we'd left the door open or that the dogs had got into next door's chickens or something like that. So um, we just, and then they came in, you know, and sat down. And then you start to wonder. And then they said she'd been fatally wounded. And I thought she'd been hurt, you know. I just thought she'd had an accident. And to be honest, I've been expecting something like that because, mm. uh, you know, because of the way she'd been talking about the safety on the farm and things like that. So I I wouldn't be surprised until it sank in that they meant she was dead. And then it was, you know, nothing happened. Like you hear people sometimes just, my my mother-in-law lost my husband's brother and she just dropped down, dead. not dead, but she just dropped down and fainted. Mm. And that didn't happen to me. You know, there was no sort of, I felt like I was watching a film of myself. That's the only way I can describe it. I felt really sort of dissociated from myself. But the next morning, I mean, I didn't sleep all night. And I spoke to a really close friend of hers who just was about to turn his laptop off off and go to sleep when I messaged him and said, Mia's been been stabbed. And um, he... uh, you know, he will never forgive me because he never, he didn't sleep that night or for many nights afterwards. And, you know, and then it was sort of going through her social media and trying to close her Facebook profile down because there were, there was a lot on that by then from her time on the Gold Coast. that I didn't really want it in the public domain. That wasn't happening. You know, there's no way Facebook will let you do that or you can make it private. And, um, And then the next morning, going out onto the very early, like at at dawn, going out onto the decking in front, the back of our house, and just the legs sort of going from under me. And then I realized that my body wasn't functioning properly. So Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but it was like, I'd got really bad arthritis all of a sudden. So that must've been the physical effects of the shock. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and then it was all just full-on organising the funeral here while getting ready to go out there and trying to decide who was going to come out with us because family wants to come too. And then um, booking flights and making sure we're all on the same flight. And and it just, you know, mm-hmm. it just we didn't have time to think until we got onto the plane. And then on the plane journey, that's what sort I of broke down first and started to cry and just cried and cried.
2: When was the last remember,
0: time? I remember this air hostess saying to me, "They take the, the the." I showed her a picture of me, and she said, "They take the beautiful ones first to be God's angels." And I thought. If he's taken Mia as an angel, he's sure as hell got his hands full. <laughs> that was the thought across my mind.
2: <laughs> That's a <Yeah>. beautiful thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't <know> me <laughs> when was the, when was the last time that you actually got to speak with Mia? Uh, the night. No, the,
0: uh, it's hard to work out the time frames, but it must have been the day she died. Wow! Because it was the night. The morning that I found out, so it was within 12 hours of her death.
2: Yeah.
0: And I'd missed a call from her the night before, and I was in a complete panic because I knew there was something going on. I didn't know what it was. But, you know, when you've... I'm a single parent of an only child, and that link is umbilical still, Mm. and just sensing that there was something wrong and i didn't know what it was but even what she told me about no induction no training to use equipment fear of being hit by machinery fear of snakes i mean she was terrified of spiders which is just funny but it's probably not that funny out there but
2: um yeah Don't worry, just I'm afraid of spiders too <laughs> she's just she was just sort of
0: pathologically afraid of spiders but um, just all of that and the way she was being treated, you know, being screamed at by the hostel owner, and then talking about someone she'd met possibly rescuing her and helping her to sign off for days. It was just disconcerting. There was nothing she because Mia being Mia, she wouldn't have said anything to me, where I was, that would alert me to danger. She's no way she would have talked to me about feeling threatened by a man in a room because, so what was the point? You know, that was her. She was pragmatic and she never bad-mouthed and never gossiped. That was just her character. So when the coroner said, oh, but she only told one person that she wanted to move rooms, surely she'd have told the whole hostel that she wanted to move rooms. Mia didn't operate like that. We played her cards very close to her chest, always, and she would go to the one person she knew could help her. And in that case, it was Lorraine Garizia, and she told Lorraine that she wanted to move rooms since she hadn't been given permission. So, yeah.
2: So how many people were actually on this, uh, this farm working?
0: Oh, no idea. I have no idea. I don't even know. Which I assume she was on the sugarcane farm, but she worked on another farm pr- prior to that. So I don't know.
2: So, and how many days into the 88 was she? Six. She was six coming? days. Six days. She was
0: probably, um, yeah, six days in.
2: My goodness. And you wouldn't expect anything like this to happen in Australia at all, but it did happen. And what I'm curious about is, How did it happen?
0: Can I say, you might not expect things like this to happen, but having heard some of the stories, Mm. I do know of other deaths on the 88 days, and I know of sexual assaults, and I know of young women who've narrowly escaped with their lives when they've been imprisoned in a pig pen, for example. You must know the pig pen story. You know, maybe... Back in when Mia first talked about going to Australia, I thought, ah, she'll be safe in Australia. But not anymore. Not anymore. You know, you're wrong if you think these kind of things don't happen in Australia.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you want to not believe it. Yeah. Having, like living here all my life. You know, I do know that horrible things do happen. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just, it's horrendous to think that someone from another country comes here and they are treated that way and they end up losing their life. It's just. Well, I know
0: so many cases now, you know, mm. men put into the fields or and a, a woman and a man I know of put into the fields not given water. Well, that's, that's illegal in the UK. No toileting facilities, no water in Australia. And um, this young man, Olivia Caraman, is the one I'm thinking of, who went out there and um, in, on his second day in the field, he started to fe- feel dizzy and faint. And this is a cyclist who cycled across Europe. He's not, he's a fit man. Mm. His legs were going from under him. He asked to stop work. He was forced to carry on because the farmer was under duress to get the crop in. He, Died in front of his best friend, who's now completely traumatized. Um, A young pianist, Korean, I believe, who lost both her hands in um, an abattoir. And I believe the compensation was, or the fine against the company was something like £75,000. You know, and it goes on, Um, a young. Irish woman, scalped, lost a mirror because she was made to clean a moving conveyor belt, and it, you know it's that sort of lack of respect. And then there's no manslaughter to charge over there if you've caused the death of a worker in right. uh, in an Australian business, whereas over here that would be the the potential result that you know the, a business owner could with there, be, yeah, there the, it's a the fine and that can be absorbed into the costs of the business so what's the incentive to enforce health and safety and to train every new backpacker when there's such a fast turnover and there's a huge waiting list so if one complains about the circumstances they can just move, be moved on and they find another one mm. they find more backpackers because there's so many trying to get their 88 days Mm. So it's this conveyor belt of innocent, naive people who will are competing with each other for work, and then they're being sent across Australia, and a lot, a lot of the um, the offences will never reach the press because they're so widespread. You know they go to hostels on the promise of full weeks' work. They arrive over and over again. There's two days work. This Tom Jackson has just been um, recognized as a hero. He's been had a bravery award in Australia. Mm. This happened to him. He goes across Australia, he arrives in the hostel, he's promised five days work. There's two days work, then he's laid off. Then, in a couple of weeks' time, he's given another couple of days work. His passport has been confiscated, so he can't leave until he's paid off the debt. And the debt is mounting and the work is less and less, you know, and, and that is happening. That's just industry practice in these hostels. That's well known among the backpacker community. Once they've experienced it, but they don't believe it because they believe, they want to believe that they're the ones that are going to get five days work. Mm. So Mia walked into Home Hill Hostel and there were people sitting around who had no work and she was given work straight away. Now, when I went out there, I met some Finnish girls and they were were women, they were like in their thirties. And they said to me, oh, we got work at first, but then the work dried up. And then this other woman came and she got loads of work. I said, what did the other woman look like? Oh, she was just gorgeous, young, 19 year old, stunning looking. I thought, that's funny because that's Mia. You know, the good-looking girl turns up straight into the field. You know, and then I find out that in the Burdekin, where Mia was working, there's a sex for sign-off scandal on the farm. That girls are being forced to have sex in order to get their paperwork, and that force constitutes sexual assault, rape. I asked the police what it what it it what they called it, and they said that's rape.
2: Mm.
0: You know, because there's a, there's a, that power imbalance and that pressure is, is an, it's an
2: assault. So even if Mia wanted to leave, she couldn't leave.
0: Six days in, she had enough money to leave mm. and who knows what she would have done if she'd then been laid off. She could presumably she could have left who knows you know once the work dried up or if she'd been pressured in that way I don't know what she would have done who knows because we will never know
2: Mm. so can you talk me through I mean this shouldn't happen to anyone but Mia was she was murdered and there was no investigation at all into her murder Um,
0: I had, was deemed to be unfit to stand trial because of his mental health issues. What? Yeah. He was tried in a mental health court. Interestingly, in that mental health court, they, um, the part of his defense was that he had no interest in Mia whatsoever. He saw her as a silly little girl. That was the words that were used. He didn't have to speak. And um, every well, the coroner's report says he was obsessed with Mia. He was in love with Mia. He wants to take her as his wife. He wants her to go with him when he left. She was in, he believed she'd been put in the room for him, for his sexual gratification, presumably. And given the situation in the Burdekin, he was probably right. Mm. You know, he was a respected worker. He'd returned to that farm and he was the supervisor. He wasn't just any worker. He was valued. So who's to say that a pretty girl turns up, He's put in, she's put in his room. Who knows why they put her there? I don't know. But, you know, I'll never know. But then if it had gone to trial then at least we'd know one way or the other, but it never did, you know. Mm.
2: So you can't fight at all for the kind of justice that you would like?
0: It's not about justice and it's not about... I don't want to spend my energy on a campaign against IAD Mm. Um, because I don't think you should put energy into things you can't change. And I can't change that system. That's, uh, I mean, I know there have been issues in that system in the past that, you know, that there have been wrong judgments in the mental health courts. But that's that's not something I want to put my energy into mm. because this is not a campaign against Ayad and his family. If they've made a mistake, it's not my problem to be honest. It's, it's their problem, it's his family's problem, or it's France's problem when he gets deported to France. You know, if he is released and he's still capable of doing the same thing, that's really sad, but it's not my issue. And I don't really see the world in terms of vengeance and you know, this weighing scale of his life against hers. He, he destroyed his own life when he killed my daughter. There's no two ways about it. If he has any shred of decency about him, he destroyed her, his own life by killing a beautiful person. And if he didn't destroy his own life, then he's not a person I'm interested in. You know, if he really is that an evil monster, he's somebody else's evil monster. He's not mine. I refuse to let him take my life mm. with his evil. You know the campaign was for on a broader level, and if I was joining a movement for change, you know, there were other people, but it was just because I was getting publicity around Mia's death. I knew that it, I know, I know for a fact that with enough enough impetus, this campaign can make a difference. And I do believe it may take a change of regime. I hope not. I hope that there that with the present incumbent politicians, that there is enough drive to change
2: Mm.
0: this system. I do hope there is, that they recognise that it's not my responsibility, it's theirs.
2: Which is another aspect of your book as well. You talk about uh, Turnbull and Trump. So those, and then how Turnbull actually sent you an open letter And that's just one part of the, the, the conversation I do want to get into in a moment. But your mindset surrounding all this, where does that come from? Like how long has it taken you to adopt this kind of mindset of I'm going to win and I'm not going to let him take away my energy trying to get justice for him or justice for me, I'm sorry. I think it's
0: probably the... The flip side of that mother, that that love for Mia, you know, that was all-encompassing in a way. You know, it was a it was a very strong relationship, and when that was taken away from me, it turned into a campaigning force. But also, I think I'm that person anyway. You know, I see Australians and the way you are and the things you've done to create a country out of red earth and, you know, bear, the, the bare bones, which yes, people did live on, but you created something incredible. And I like to think that I've got a bit of your nature in me. I think I've got more in common with Australians than I have with the British because you understand I I see that that flicker of understanding in Australians when they see how bloody abided I am. I just feel that sort of that people relate to me out there because they understand that I won't take no for an answer and I'm gonna take this as far as
2: I can. Mm. And if you like read her book, even from the, the word go, you can look at the from the very start, it's hard hitting. But if you go to the, the chapters, ones that I want to lay out here, um, first one is Mia's early travels. So you, you go back a little bit, Mia's death, and then you've got Turnbull and Trump, which is a very fascinating chapter. Australian story, campaigning on a modern slavery act. And I like how you are getting to the the root issue, which is we are we do have a lot of modern slavery going around the world It is happening It is happening in Australia. There's mm. we can be naive to it all we want, but the sad truth is, and I really believe this with all my heart. I could be wrong, but I believe mm. this with all my heart from stories that I've heard, from even witnessing Like and reading part of your story, what's going on? It seems to me like there's a great big cover-up. Like nothing wants to really be done about the issue. And my question, like my my question is always, why not? Like if this Mm. is such a a potent problem that is killing people, Mm. why isn't anything really being done done about it? And if we go to the letter that the Turnbull uh, sent you, he was basically, oh, you're a grieving mother, you know, we'll fob you off. Yeah. That's not right. Like, no. and, and my question is how do we even know that he wrote the letter in the first place?
0: Um, we don't, and yeah. don't froth about things you can't change. Exactly. Keep your energy on what you can do, not what you can't do. So I wrote back to Turnbull to say where he was mistaken, and there was a Fair Work report where he was giving up, he was giving Fair Work as the solution to all these problems. There was a Fair Work report which said, even in terms of the financial infringements, they weren't the solution because the problem was so widespread of such incredibly low rates of pay that those themselves endangered the backpackers. But, um, you know, the, the, they, the safety issues around hostels, you know, well, think about the, um, the Childers Backpackers hostel, all right, the fire in that, that's an accident waiting to happen in so many hostels where um, they have no Um, fire escapes, they have no, the fire exits are blocked, there's vermin in the hostels, all of these things, you know. And yes, you're right. I wasn't the first person to use the term modern slavery in this respect. The first person I heard use the term modern slavery around the 88 days was Senator Linda Reynolds. And she came out in public and said that this was... An example that there were examples that suggested that modern slavery was an issue, and um, yeah, Turnbull's response was not um, was not acceptable. And I called thirteen times in press interviews on one day to speak to Peter Dutton when he was um,
2: yeah
0: minister your minister of the interior I think I can't remember what his title was but I could I asked him 13 times and he never ever spoke to me so you know but you live in hope you can't give up and you know you're getting under their skin if you're getting that much press if you're getting 13 interviews and he's ignoring 13 interviews that's a win because <laughs> he, he's got no answer for me. Yeah. He can't. They can't answer me. They can only ignore me. And that's what they'll do now. They'll just ignore it. But at least I'm raising the issues. At least it's out there. And mm-hmm. it gets harder then for people to perpetrate these crimes because people in the community start to watch. And that's what's happened. I mean, anecdotally, I heard that there was change on the ground, you know, around the time of the... Um, the uh abc um documentary
2: Mm. um australian story
0: yeah that's it yeah australian story yeah yeah so there that that there was people were more circumspect about how they treated backpackers but now i think you know during lockdown, it's been just as bad. And some of the stories have been just as awful. And right. I think we'll, we'll be back to square one when the backpackers come back into the country.
2: Yeah. Now, Rosie, for for your story in, in trying to bring awareness to this, this issue, what has been the most challenging part for you?
0: The Australian story, going out there and taking that role in public as a campaigner when i just i didn't feel strong enough to do it i didn't feel um i felt like i was a fraud especially just before i had this my adrenaline just fell through the floor and i didn't want to go i didn't want to do it and i thought i was going to be found out as a fraud but then i got out there and it was it's the weirdest thing I think it was, I don't compare myself to Gandhi, but there's a film about him and he says something like, if you say your truth, people will find you. Mm. And people found me. So many of the right people appeared at the right time to help. And, you know, people like a guy called Moe Turaga, who's uh, from the Pacific Islands and was enslaved effectively he thought he was sending money home but he was sending money into a bank account into somebody's bank account they were starving they were so hungry that some of his compatriots had to steal and kill a cow so they had enough to eat you know desperate stories and then second generation slaves Pacific Islanders I met as well through um, through other campaigners and their stories of working in the cane fields. And I thought, that sounds like me, (laughs) you know, you know, that this is still going on, but they're using backpackers. And then a campaigner over here, who was just amazing. She found me really early on. She'd actually worked as a backpacker in Australia and she stood up. She was about to start shouting that this was not fair and she wasn't prepared to work for this money. And her fellow backpacker said, shut up or you will be left in this field. When they take the bus back, they'll leave you here and you'll have to walk back. And it was miles to walk back. So she couldn't even speak up. And the next day she left that hostel. So she knew from firsthand, but she was worked for the Gangmasters Labour Abuse Authority, which deal with all of these issues over here. And she had power, powers of arrest as an officer where she could go in, if she saw modern slavery, she could arrest the uh, perpetrators. Well, that's what we knew They you need over there. So the Modern Slavery Act is great, but it's toothless because you've got no enforcement agency. Mm. You're relying on police who still, when they encounter a victim of rape, still don't take forensic evidence, still assume that this powerful farmer who lives next down the road from them is the good man they've always perceived him as and refuse to do anything because this girl's just passing through. That's still happening. Mm. It takes several, it takes a man to rape several young women and for several stories to emerge for the police to start to take it seriously in some of these areas. And that's not the true across the board. You know, I do think there's very good pockets of good practice in, you know, the remote regional areas in North Queensland, but it's not the case across the board.
2: Yeah, which does need a change. I yeah. wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah. And I think the reason why I wanted to have you on is so you can share your story. But I'm also passionate about spreading awareness on this issue because I think Thank more you. more can be done, more should Thank be you. done, and my hope and my prayer is that more will be done. Good. And it's because of people like yourself, Rosie, that actually take a stand that have been through a lot a lot of grief but are still you're still thriving you're still moving forward you're not giving up you're you're persistent and yeah i love that <laughs> i love that about your personality it's thank you you see what i mean australians understand me I australians wanna,
0: get me don't
2: they <laughs> i do, i do understand you but i yeah. i have a part of that personality in myself so i see yeah, it in you yeah definitely then that's what yeah i I connect with i connect with it but sort of rounding out i I do want to be mindful of your time rounding out our conversation Mm -hmm. you've got you've got this book far from home where can people learn more about your story connect with you buy the book that sort of thing where yeah anywhere books are sold right
0: yeah. Please <laughs> yeah. buy the book.
2: <laughs> it's uh it's released by Penguin Random House, which I do want to highlight as they are the the number one uh book publishing company in the world, which is pretty stellar. So trust me, go and get a copy. Um you, you wanna read this book. It's it's not an easy read, but at the same time it is an easy read. Like it's a story. Like it's not advice or anything, it's not boring. It's very very informative so thank you (laughs) uh, i i I struggled to put it down until i got very very emotional (laughs) uh yeah so rosie my final question for you this one okay if you were to see your daughter again just one more time what would you want to say to her
0: I would want to say, where are you now? Mm -hmm. I want to know where she is because I think she's back. (laughs) (laughs) I think she's been born again. She believed in reincarnation. When she was little, she talked about a previous life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe until she died. And then now I do.
2: What keeps you going? What keeps you doing this? (laughs)
0: Uh, she does. She won't let me stop.
2: <laughs> mm. You're a wonderful lady. She'd be very proud of you. Thank you. I'm, Thank proud you. Of, I'm proud of you. Damn it! I'm proud of
0: you.
2: <laughs> My goodness. Thank you. Okay,
0: let's leave it there because you've made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Okay. That's
2: okay. Thank you for for sharing your story today of being open and vulnerable enough and, yeah, I hope that it does get better. So because of people like you, well, I have no doubt about it. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the Storybox podcast.
0: Really good to speak to you. Bye-bye.
2: I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.
1: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.